towards the end of John's talk last night, he told a story about one of his teachers and how there was a small group of people um, receiving the teachings and the practices and how the teacher acknowledged there are so many here, you know, not just the ones physically embodied in the room. And he also acknowledged how, um, for him, that's an important um, component of this path of practice. I think of that component as part of the path of practice of the mystic. And we don't need to identify as a mystic. Um, Many of us carry um, threads or gentle murmurs of this mystic, which is part of our human range of connection. So I thought I would pick up where he left off. And one of the ways that uh, I acknowledge this is I I talk about the unseen benevolent forces. Just like, oh, could we at times, when it feels comfortable, be open to the possibility that there is more going on than what we can see with our physical eye in the physical world. So it's not a request to believe anything. It's an invitation to be open to a sense of possibility. And for some people, this lands much more than others, and that's okay. But in that spirit, I wanted to begin the reflection tonight with a mantra that comes out of southern Thailand, and it's a mantra to, um, to acknowledge and to be open to the unseen benevolence that's available in this life, in this world. And the mantra goes like this. O-A, O-A, Metta, Budo. So A, O-A, O-A, seed syllables. They carry a lot of power. And Metta, of course, loving kindness. Budo, awake. So I'm going to begin with saying this uh, nine times. And you are more than welcome to join your voices in. You are more than welcome to just open your own uh, sense of awareness to be available to benevolence. I mean, why not? What have we got to lose? (laughs) But let's just see what feels right. O-A, O-A, Metta, Budo. 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 O-A, O a meta budo. O a o a meta budo. O a o a meta budo. O a o a meta budo. May we receive the blessings of our lives. Some of the questions that have been coming up in the hall in the mornings this retreat um, have been interesting to me. So I wanted to recap a couple of them, and of course I'm going to say them as a headline in my own words. So yesterday there was a question here, what is the difference between mindfulness and awareness? Are they different? And Mary Grace offered, I felt, a succinct, because of time, and a clear response to that. And then she acknowledged that if you asked each one of us, 
on this teaching team the same question, you would get different answers. They would all carry probably the same spirit, but there's different ways of approaching these important questions. Then this morning, we had two questions. And the way that I held the first one as a headline is kind of this question about the process of experiencing insight and how we digest and integrate those insights. Very, very important topic. Um, Underserved as far as uh, Dharma teachings go. And then the other question was about the space between the discursive thinking and the meditation technique. And is that important in this tradition, that space? So tonight I want to share with you a map. And it's a map that comes from the Thai Force tradition which is uh, part of my training. And it's really a map about how mindfulness matures over the course of our spiritual journey, our spiritual training. And for me, this particular map has a lot to offer in terms of all of those questions. So it felt timely to bring in. But before we get to the map, there's kind of two, what, opening metaphors, stories, a a little bit of context so that we can practice within this map. Um, And part of the practice is actually just hearing these different maps because there are a lot of different maps in our meditation training. This is just one. And it has within it teachings that, for those of you who've been doing this longer, are very recognizable. Uh, But a little bit of context first. So the, um, the first one I want to mention comes, it's an image that really resonates for me in terms of relating with these teachings and practices. It's an image that comes out of the Zen tradition, um, one of the texts. There have been many commentaries, both written and oral, on this image, and it will be an image that's familiar to many of you. And it's the image of the finger pointing at the moon. Okay, so here we are in the full moon time. It's so fantastic to sit retreat during full moon time. A bunch of us were out there after chanting last night, just going, oh. If you haven't gone, oh, yeah, tonight's another night. May it be clear, as far as the sky goes anyway. So... (laughs) So we've got the moon and we've got the finger. Um, now, again, many different commentaries on this. Here's how I'm just going to um, hold it in a very simple way. We've got our whatever experience we have in meditation in these teachings from our at-home practice. Maybe we sit at home. Maybe we listen to teachings. All different things that we do. Those are all the finger. Okay? We get here. Uh, there's a schedule There's the precepts as a practice, as a training. Uh, We're breathing in and out. And yeah, we were already doing that. We're not here to become breathing experts. I mean, just to state the obvious. Uh, We were already breathing. But we train with this intimacy of attention, moment by moment, hour after hour, hundreds of thousands of breaths. We practice the technique of loving kindness. We do walking meditation. We practice yoga. All of those are forms, right? So in this case, the way I'm holding it is they're the finger. And then there's the moon. So what's that about? Well, as I said, we're not here to become breathing experts or walking experts or um, yoga technique experts. We're not here to become the best mental noters, the slowest walkers, the most full-hearted Um, loving-kindness, wishes, and images, meditator. But if you're anything like me, it can be quite tricky over the course of the time that we practice. It gets confusing. We start to believe that the form is it. And I think that the answer is yes, the form is it, but it's not the only it. 
We need the forms. We need the techniques. We need the trainings. But then there's the moon. Then there's that space. that Somebody was feeling some calling to ask about. And the moon, of course, is luminous. It's bright. There's a clarity there. All of the techniques, all the forms, all the trainings point to something. And it's why we care enough to work this hard. Really. This isn't easy, is it? Not always. It sure hasn't been for me. So that's the first one to, um, to just keep in mind. The second one is Star Trek. I mean, why not? Right? Bring in something modern. So uh, Star Trek was actually the last television show that I watched on cable before I turned cable off about 20 years ago. So my, my last memory of cable television was Star Trek Voyager and Captain Janeway, and, and I loved Star Trek. It, it was great, you know, it was, it was very much um, before its time in terms of some of its themes. And so, uh, like many of us, I like to use kind of what's already available as part of the teaching. So this one is uh, the power of universal translator. Now don't worry, you didn't need to watch Star Trek, I'll explain. So here we are in a vast universe. I can't remember how many hundreds of thousands of galaxies Gil was mentioning on the first morning, but it's vast. And lo and behold, within that vastness, out of hyperspace, two ships emerge in the same generalized space within space. And these two ships are two different species of beings, right? They don't know each other. There's nothing in common there. So what happens? I mean, when there's a situation of difference, that can trigger a lot of stuff for us. Everything from excitement and curiosity to fear and judgment, and beyond, right? And we know this, we know this in our own hearts, we know this in our communities, in this world. So here are these two ships, and um, the way that this works is come online, universal translator. Without this, there can be no communication and there could be a war, because there's no language in common, there's no connection. And so the program of Universal Translator gets turned on and Captain Janeway's voice comes out and says, uh, greetings, we have just entered your galaxy. Um, you know, uh, we're making ourselves known. And Universal Translator makes it understandable to this completely different ship of completely different beings. And then it comes back. Yes, you have just entered our territory. Please leave immediately. Okay. Without Universal Translator, there could have been a war there because the communication couldn't happen. And Captain Janeway, I'm just making this up, says, um, yes, of course, we had no idea that you know we were invading your territory. We wish you the very best, and we're going to hyperspace right out of here. This is a simple story, right? We need Universal Translator in these trainings, in these practices so many times because otherwise the language, the metaphors, the stories that are told, they don't all land for us, do they? They don't all work. They don't all evoke something in our deepest being. I remember this one time years ago, I was giving a public talk I don't remember what the topic was on, but I do remember that the topic was not on fearlessness. And the reason I remember that is I mentioned it as a very light touch aside to an aside at the end of the talk, something about being fearless. And for somebody, that was the most triggering word. They came up to me afterwards and, you know kind of melted down and they were so upset how could you use this word and I thought oh 
that was not the right word for them. They need universal translator. There's a better word for them. Because sometimes we get so caught up in the language or the example or what's not working for us that we miss the capacity, the empowering capacity to say, that didn't work and I can retranslate it for myself. I don't have to wait for somebody to do it for me. It's huge in terms of um, maturing, I think, on our spiritual path. So here is the basic map. And I'm going to say it first in Pali, the old language, because that's the way I learned it. And then I'll say some simple definitions in English, and then we'll unpack it a little bit. This is actually quite a, um, a robust teaching and, and one that um, people practice with for years. But, you know, it's just broad brushstrokes. There's plenty of um, tools and, and things that will be appropriate here. So here's my intention, is that every one of us walks out of here tonight with one thing that you just think, I think I can remember that once in a while, and I think that um, I can play with that and make it my own. That's it. Now, of course, I'm not in charge of the results, so good luck. But one thing. Okay. Here's the map in Pali. Sati. Mahasati. Satipanya. Panya Vimuti. Sati, mindfulness. Mahasati. Great mindfulness. Maha means great. Satipanya, mindfulness, wisdom. And then Panya Vimuti, wisdom that leads to release, or another way of saying it, wisdom that leads to letting go. So now we're back on that theme. So it would be easy enough to listen to that and think, oh, that's a linear progression. Sometimes it works that way, just as often as doesn't. I really hold this more thematically. That we can just like be aware. Oh, right now, it's really about mindfulness. Oh, right now, it's really about letting go. And then we'll play with some of the rest of this. So, sati, mindfulness. Um, now, we could give a whole talk on mindfulness, but briefest headline, the world of objects and the knowing of them. It's like, what are objects? Sights and sounds and mind and touch and taste and, you know, the world of the six sense doors, which are the five plus the mind, you know, the conditioned mind, the thinking mind. So we've got this world of mindfulness. We're definitely here practicing mindfulness. Um, The way that I want to what draw some around this is a image or a metaphor that actually I first heard from Gil um, some years ago when we were teaching this retreat. I absolutely don't remember how Gil unpacked this. I just remember the image. And so then I've been playing with it and practicing with it and teaching it. Uh, So, you know, it's gone down my own avenues. But it's a great one in terms of mindfulness, that there are these different um, ways that we can approach it. And so it's paddling and floating. I figured you just finished with the Grand Canyon when we bring this in, right? So paddling and floating in terms of orientation to how we're practicing mindfulness. The paddling for me, this is all about effort. It's like, okay, we've got our primary object. And we haven't really used this as a term yet, but what we're talking about is the thing that we return to over and over again. When in doubt, go there. So for many of us, it's the breath. For some of us, it's sounds coming and going that we keep coming back to. And for still others of us, this is more of a meta retreat and we're coming back to those wishes those all fall under like what we're coming back to. So we need to paddle along. Another breath, another note of the breath. 
more investigation of the body and the elements and the world of the body and we're paddling along. Oh, then we've got emotions and thoughts and we're working, right? I think sometimes culturally we have a lot of habituation for paddling and we have less habituation for floating. We paddle and we paddle and we paddle to get it right so that we can wake up or at least be okay, more okay. (laughs) And then we forget that we can just roll over and float at a certain point. Now there's discernment in this. We learn this day one because if we float too much day one, what happens? We move into the nods because the energy and the attention aren't balanced yet in their strength and it all becomes a little bit vague. It's probably not time to float much. But now, now we're moving into the heart of the retreat. We're right in it. So don't miss those intuitions to like, a little less of the technique and more moments of floating. So what's floating? Ease, relax, um, the receptivity, uh, the knowing, the sukha. We were talking about the first day, that sweetness. Sometimes we're so busy doing the meditation that we actually miss the fact that we're resting in contentment. I've had people come in. I've had this happen myself. I've had people come in to check in with me and they're like, I don't know how it's going. There's not a lot going on. Um, Maybe I'm bored. And we start to unpack it and actually what they're experiencing is peace. (laughs) And they're just not familiar with it in the same way that we are the struggle, right? So, you know, just, just an encouragement to, oh, don't miss the float. And then we paddle again, you know, because it's a progression. It's moving back and forth. So I'm not giving a talk on wise effort as part of the Eightfold Path, for those of you that are familiar with this. But I couldn't resist plugging this in with the paddling and floating analogy. I, um, there was somebody on a retreat that I taught that they were a teacher of kayaking. And so they came and and talked to my co-teacher and myself and said, oh my gosh, the teaching of wise effort, which is basically how we work with skillfulness and unskillfulness in this training, the teaching of wise effort, we have that in kayaking. And it's interesting because when you really look at the components of wise effort and you're newer to this retreat world, they can be really hard to remember but this is not. And it basically points us in the same direction. So possibilities for wise effort as we paddle and float our way down this path. Number one, stay out of trouble. Sounds good. Number two, know what to do when you get in trouble. Number three, develop good habits. Number four, Keep them going. So this is for kayaking, but this is for a lot of things. So you think about one of those habits of mind that you have that you just, or a story that you just know is going to pop up in the next day because it's popped up enough times already. And you could think to yourself, oh, I'm really going to be on the lookout for that one. Uh, Okay, just be on the lookout, kind of have a receptivity, but, but a, a commitment to not follow it any further than conditions need to have it be followed, staying out of trouble. But then let's say it comes and you start following it. Oh, now we're in trouble. So w- what are our tools, right? Oh, I could note it. I could offer some compassion. I could come back to the breath, you know, this kind of stuff, right? And then the opposite, you know, seeing what's actually developing that serves you here, you know, bookmarking it, appreciating it, and nurturing it. Develop good habits, keep them going. It's good stuff, huh? Yeah. All right, so sati, mindfulness. Now we got maha sati. It's a little more complicated than great mindfulness. It was interesting because the way that I learned these teachings was 
a process of translation to begin with because the teacher that was teaching them was Thai. And so he was teaching uh, in Thai and using a lot of Pali words, some of which I knew at the time and some of which I did not know. And I had to learn. And so there were two different languages going on and um, I'm an English speaker. So I had to wait for the translation. But the thing was, was that um, this teacher was quite passionate about the Dharma and very energized and he would teach for long periods of time the way a a lot of the Asian teachers uh, do, the monastics. And so he would run through translators. They would get worn out. (laughs) So one translator and then there'd be another two translators and then they kind of drive in some more translators a couple days later. And so it was a lot of different translations. And they translated this word Mahasati differently into English. It was endlessly frustrating for me. I said, why can't they have a translator's meeting and come up with one translation so that I know what they're talking about? But I have to say, after enough time of this process, I started to understand something, which was, wow, if you take all the different translations of this word into English and put them together, then you're starting to get a sense of the range of what this is. There wasn't one translation. That's why they, you know, maybe why they weren't using just one translation. So, um, the, the main ones, there were five, but we're not going to be here all night. So, um, I want to focus on the first three because they're more applicable to the practice that we're doing here on this retreat. And then I'll just um, touch the other two for reference and leave it at that. Okay. So, um, firstly, Mahasati is great mindfulness. Secondly, Mahasati as continuous awareness. Third, Mahasati as pure knowing. Fourth, Mahasati as pure awareness. And fifth, Mahasati as mindfulness of emptiness. Okay. So great mindfulness. Um, This is pointing to another Eightfold Path factor. For those of you that are new, I'll explain that in a moment. Mindfulness informed by wise view. One of the fundamentals of wise view in our direct experience is the lived experience, moment by moment, cycle by cycle, of the Four Noble Truths. And we haven't shared this yet in this retreat. So it's not a talk on the Four Noble Truths, but let's at least headline it, both for reference and for people who are new. Again, I'm making a choice to say these Four Noble Truths in my own words. And the reason that I'm doing that is to encourage us all to find our own words for these foundational teachings that can really inform our whole practice life. It seems to me like there are times when it's really important to study And there are times when it might be really important to look at multiple translations of this very important teaching. And then there are other times where it's really important to find our own words that speak to our heart out of what we understand intellectually and in direct experience. So the first noble truth. It isn't easy being a human being living a life. So being a human being, living a life, includes stress, uh, suffering, difficulty. I love that first noble truth. Just completely personally as a practitioner, it allowed me access to the fact that the difficulties of my body, my heart, mind, and life were not a personal failing. This is how it is. Second noble truth. There is a cause to this dis-ease. There's a cause for this um, 
suffering, this uh, you know, difficulty, this stress, sometimes is translated. And the cause is craving. But another way of um, holding it without getting into the whole teaching of this is the cause is struggle. So we can really be on the lookout for struggle, less struggle, no struggle. And that moves into the Third Noble Truth. My favorite translation of the Third Noble Truth comes from Sylvia Borstein. Peace is possible. Peace is possible. Same body, same heart, same mind, same life, same world. And when we begin to access that peace more and more, we have such incredible capacity to give because we're cleared out of the reactivity and so we can see and care and respond. It's not passive. And then the fourth noble truth is the Eightfold Path. I think of it as there are tools, you know, to both um, to acknowledge the difficulty, the cause and how it develops and plays out, that there is another way, path of peace, and that there's a a training. So it includes wise view, it includes wise intention, includes wise speech and wise action and wise livelihood, wise effort, mindfulness, concentration, all these different aspects. So that's Mahasati is great mindfulness. Then we have Mahasati is continuous awareness. And this is part of why we really, really encourage in these retreats, what we call a continuity of mindfulness. I call it the dance of mindfulness. Sometimes I even hear background music in my head when just that moment by moment attention, whether there's labeling of what's happening or not, gets in its groove. There's like a little background hum. Sometimes it's not like a discernible piece of music. It's like this visceral hum. Do you have your version of that? You're just getting your groove. You're like, oh, standing up from leaving the hall. And there's all this movement and flow. And then the reaching and the pushing and the you know, pulling on the shoes and the tying. And it's just like going to the bathroom is the most wonderful thing because it's all in the same flow. You experience this? No, maybe it was in the dining hall for you. It was in the dining hall for you. And you're going down the food line. It's just like... The lifting, the placing, it's just this presence, it's continuous, and what starts to happen out of that um, is that the quality, this is not the only way that the quality of samadhi or concentration starts to increase, but it's a very gently supportive way. We're not doing um, a whole retreat on concentration training here. We're allowing the concentration to um, emerge through this continuity, continuity with the breath, continuity with all activities. And it does. Have you noticed? Folks came in today and said things like, I just feel a little more settled, or I'm not as sleepy, you know, one of the hindrances. It happens. Thinking about Sylvia Borstein again. A couple of years ago, she was laughing. Um, I teach a retreat with her every winter. And she was laughing and she said, you know, I think if we just have people show up here, uh, relinquish their devices, and um, basically just like follow the schedule, I don't think, it might not matter if they meditate in some technical, traditional way very much at all. I think if they just stay in the field, that, that some amazing things would happen. I mean, what a spirit of allowing. She's got that spirit. All right, so Mahasati is great mindfulness. Mahasati is continuous awareness. Mahasati is pure knowing. So again, the word pure, you might need to use the universal translator. This was just the translation I got. So what's that referring to? Um, What this one is pointing to is um, that consciousness at the six sense doors is not colored by the defilements. So we've got some stuff to unpack here. Six sense doors, the five plus the mind. 
Um, and it's not colored by the defilements. So again, better translations are happening, are needed. But really what that's pointing to are these deep-seated habit patterns. They're reactive, they're conditioned, they're difficult for us. If we're a human being living a life not fully awakened, we know these really well. And they're the whole range of greed and all of its permutations, the whole range of kind of um, aversion and all of its permutations, you know, the anger, the fear, the irritation, the whole range of delusion. Confusion, vagueness, that whole deal. So this morning, John was um, bringing up another one of my favorite analogies, which was the colored glasses. You remember this? You get out of bed. You know, a lot of us have been having those retreat dreams that are really intense, whether they're beautiful or horrific. So if you're thinking, am I the only one? The answer is no, absolutely not. Um, they happen here. The practice doesn't stop when we go to sleep. Sorry. There are no breaks here. That is the best possible news. It does not mean paddle harder. It means there's no breaks. Every moment is potent with the potential for intimacy and connection and continuity. That's what no breaks means. So you wake up in the morning and you've got you know the irritation glasses on and you don't know that they're on or the sadness or, or like it's the most beautiful, happy day in the world. Glasses, right? It doesn't have to be difficult. But if we don't know that we have the glasses on, then we don't know that we're seeing the world through that lens. And when they're glasses that are filled with defilement activity, you know, both deeper roots of our patterns, of our habits, of our conditioning. It's like the glasses are glued on. (laughs) And we've been walking around with these things. um, How long? I don't know how long. We've been walking around for a long time. It's one of a thousand reasons why the spiritual path. Okay? So this is... Um, a wonderful quote from the numerical discourses of the Buddha. Luminous is this mind, brightly shining, but it is colored by the attachments that visit it. This unlearned people do not really understand and so do not cultivate the mind. Luminous is this mind, brightly shining, and it is free from the attachments that visit it. This, the noble follower of the way, really understands. So for them, there is cultivation of the mind. So mahasati is pure knowing is when those glasses start to clear out or they've cleared out. Everything that um, is being pointed to here is what I call in the framework of small moments many times. It's not like we're trying to create something and keep it. It doesn't work that way. It's small moments many times. And then through cultivation and training, it starts to be cycles. So... Mahasati, great mindfulness, continuous awareness, pure knowing, pure awareness. Again, just a a different way of articulating the same thing. Whole nother commentary on that I'm not going to get into. And then Mahasati, the fifth, is mindfulness of emptiness. Now, that's a whole retreat. So... Um, to keep it simple so that we can access that here on this retreat. I say that, um, again, sometimes we need a universal translator with this word emptiness. But let's just hold it as um, that there's this process as we do this work of, of emptying out and getting to know the absence of solidity, and separation. 
So it's a lack of solidity. It's a lack of separateness. And again, we're connecting with that here, small moments many times, and sometimes longer. So we can be on the lookout. The key with all this is recognition. It really goes back to sati. Because if we go back to that question about the space between um, the thinking discursive mind and the meditation technique, and is, you know, what about that space? Is that space important? It's a locationless space, it doesn't have a location. But in that space, there is room for this to be revealed and it gets revealed over and over again. But here's the problem. It's so subtle that we miss it. It's kind of like the person who thought they were bored but actually there was peace. It's so subtle that we miss it. It's so close that we think that we should do something more extreme like a two-month retreat or a you know, 15-day fast. Or don't, Please don't fast here. We have enough of a pressure cooker, Okay. Enjoy the food. (laughs) So it's tricky. You know, and that's okay. Because we didn't actually come here for um, what we already knew. It's helpful to have some stuff we already know. It's reassuring. But we didn't really come here for just what we already knew. So we have sati, mahasati, sati panya, mindfulness wisdom. You still with me? A little technical talk, huh? A little bit. No. I'm trying to really make it accessible. It's a work in progress. So, mindfulness wisdom, satipanya. The wise view is becoming more mature still. All right? And very specifically in terms of one teaching and practice, which is important across Buddhist traditions. And that teaching and practice is called the three characteristics. I have renamed it um, the three wisdom lenses. Just to fit in with the idea of the colored glasses, it's like, oh, the, the glasses are colored with, um, with wanting. It's like, oh, when they start to clear out then there's room to see. And the seeing is with wisdom. So these three wisdom lenses, what are they? Again, just for fun, three more Pali words. Anicca, dukkha, anatta. Which means impermanence, anicca. Unsatisfactoriness, dukkha. And uh, not self, anatta. Not personal. So one of the ways that I've um, worked with this in my own practice to make it a little bit more accessible through language is I say to myself, everything changes. When I hold on, it hurts. It's not personal. And then when we get tripped up with the part of it's not personal because it feels so personal, it's like, okay, I know everybody experiences hip pain, but man, this is mine. (laughs) It's funny how we can hold those simultaneously in the same awareness. And that counts. That's way better than I'm the only one that's ever gone through this, will ever go through this, and you know, why would they ever offer this kind of thing? It's so horrible. That's really personal. We go through that too. This is a human practice for humans. <laughs> so everything changes and we hold on, it hurts. It's not personal. And sometimes I have in parentheses, or at least it's not personal the way I think it is. I like to have parentheses. Gives things a little more space. So what I would encourage in terms of if you feel like exploring this aspect of satipanya in the coming day is to choose one of these three. Change, um, the way that the, the struggle or the unsatisfactoriness is painful, uh, not taking things so personally. Choose one. You have to have the sati to remember to check it out at some point tomorrow. And then just see where it shows up. How many times can you notice? Where does it feel more important to be in relationship with it? How does it inform your experience of reality? 
because it's a different set of lenses. So it's a great investigation for this point in the retreat. When I think about everything changes, sometimes I wish if, (laughs) there's a few things that I wish I could just um, implant in the the collective consciousness of retreats. Things that were hard won learned for me. And I know everybody's got to go through their own process in this. And we're all in process. But one of them is things happen in cycles. So we're going through the upset, we're going through the insight, we're going through the incredible uh, moment with some of the wildlife out here, whatever it is, and we forget that it's a cycle. And then we try to hold on and um, keep it going or push it away before it's time and we just forget, oh, it's a cycle. The more often we can remember it's a cycle, the more ease there is, the more room for wisdom to shine forth. Mm. With the unsatisfactoriness, I'm just on the lookout for struggle, less struggle, and no struggle. No struggle is important to pay attention to. We tend to miss that one. And with um, anatta, not not self, sometimes I'll just say to myself, ah, something's happening. I'll go, ah, it's a process happening to a system that I call me. That's it. Just a process happening to a system. So I want to share with you a quote by Upasaka Ki. And Upasaka Ki um, has passed on now, but she's one of the uh, elders, the women elders in the Thai Force tradition. She says, this one thing is something you have to be very careful about. You have to see this for yourself. That if your mindfulness and discernment, wisdom, If your mindfulness and discernment are constantly in charge, the truths of arising and disbanding of mental and physical phenomenon are always there for you to see, always there for you to know. That's what this mindfulness wisdom provides, that opportunity to be in connection and harmony and knowing with change. So, sati, mahasati, sati panya, panya vimuti, wisdom that leads to release, wisdom that leads to letting go. So now we need our Kleenex, or your sock, or your shawl, okay? Because we're going to talk about Ajahn Chah. Ajahn Chah is one of our great late elders in the Thai Force tradition, teacher to Jack Cornfield. And I'm interested, this is a personal interest I have in taking quotes that are um, more well-known in this tradition and actually um, practicing with them. So we can listen to quotes and go, oh, that was a cool quote. And that's fine. We get inspired, you know, re-energized, beautiful. But so many of these quotes are actually teachings So how do we practice with them instead of just read them and go, that was cool and move on to the next ingestion of Dharma? There's a lot of Dharma out there now. We can just ingest all day, but we got to practice too. So this is his famous quote. If you let go a little, you get a little peace. If you let go a lot, you get a lot of peace. And if you let go completely, Complete peace. That's a process. For me, that's, th- those are invitations into practice. So, um, again, everybody has different learning styles. And, and so much of the way that these teachings are offered are um, auditory style. That's not my best way to learn. If somebody had provided me with a handout of these teachings, I would have learned this stuff so much faster. So, you know, a lot of the retreats I teach, you know, smaller groups, I have handouts and I like to do somatic exercises and I've got different ways that we take in what, you know, and what we understand. So this is somatic. 
So we've got our thing, whatever it is, our Kleenex, our sock, our shawl. And you don't have to do this, by the way, but it, if you watch me do it, it really, you know, you'll get out of it what you do, but it's not the same. Um, and what I would say is, um, whatever it is that you're holding, think of something here on retreat doesn't have to be like the worst thing that you've struggled with, but just something where you know that you've been caught and you keep getting caught. You know, it could be as simple as, um, you know, some noise in your room that you don't know what it is and it keeps like capturing your attention or, you know, just some body thing or some story that keeps coming up, something. So we've got our Kleenex here. And in order to do this, of course, the first thing we have to do is to think of that thing as a muse and to hold on to this Kleenex for dear life because that's what we do. And so to actually feel this somatically, what we do in the mind, of course, our body tightens too when we do this in the mind. And so we're playing that out through the fist. I have to say I have been threatening for the last couple of years to have us hold this for a long period of time to really, really feel what this is like. You know, don't hurt yourself. We're not going to hold it forever. Some people I work with actually do this practice often with things that they struggle with. So feeling the holding in the hand, the wrist, the forearm, the shoulder, this thing that we hold on to, I'm going to be okay if I can just keep holding on. Just sense the whole body within that holding. Yeah, that's so good. A couple of you took deeper breaths. How wise. There's enough air to breathe with holding. So the teaching of Ajahn Chah, if we let go a little, we have a little peace. So we're not going to drop this. We're just going to relax it a little bit. Still got it. Still under control. But it's relaxed a little bit. And we sense the hand, the arm, the shoulder. The whole body impact. If you let go a lot, you get a lot of peace. So each of us in our own time are going to say that to ourselves in our mind and we're going to release this Kleenex onto the ground and then after a moment we're going to pick it up because it's a habit. Because we haven't let go completely yet. So you do this in your own time, but feel your hand and your body in the release before you pick it up. There have been times when I've done this where I can just feel my hand dying to pick it up again. It's a Kleenex, but it also represents something for me. So then we pick it up. And here it is. We got it under control. Everything's fine. Okay. (laughs) We knew. This is how we do it. So much compassion. So, all right, got it. And this next one, when we say it to ourselves after I say it, you wait. I've actually had people with this exercise not finish it because they're not even ready on the metaphorical level to drop it and not pick it up again. And that's okay. Honor your process. When we let go a lot completely, we get complete peace. We're feeling the release, knowing it's not going to be picked up again. 
We know letting go is a verb, not a noun. It's a process. So we'll just have a messy meditation hall for a few hours. I mean, you can feel free to pick them up and use them or recycle them whenever you're ready. But you're also really fine to just leave it there as a muse for your own intention and the possibility of release. So we're swinging around to the end here. Panyuamuti wisdom that leads to letting go. And a couple of um, closing quotes. The first one is something that's actually very much an invitation into practice. Somebody is more than welcome tomorrow morning to raise their hand and say, Heather, what's your commentary on this quote? I'm choosing right now not to offer commentary so that we can all explore it if we feel like it as we feel like it, is an open question. Um, It's nuanced. It comes from Ajahn Fuang, another one of our elders, late elders in the Thai Force tradition. And again, we need universal translator here. But I, I, I keep it the way it is. It's been a muse for me. He said, whenever anything hits you, So what are we talking about, you know? Reactivity. It could be hitting us from self-judgment. It could be coming in from, you know, the media. Anything hits us. We know what it feels like to be hit, you know, metaphorically speaking, right? Whenever anything hits you, let it go only as far as aware. Don't let it go all the way into the heart. Whenever anything hits you, let it go only as far as aware. Don't let it go all the way into the heart. So I will post that for those that want to reflect, practice. So I finish this off with a teaching from Ajahn Sumedho, the the founder of the Western Thai forest tradition. He says, awareness is your refuge. Awareness of the changingness of feelings, of attitudes, of moods, of material change and emotional change. Stay with that because it's a refuge that is indestructible. It's not something that changes. It's a refuge you can trust in. This refuge is not something that you create. It's not a creation. It's not an ideal. It's very practical and very simple, but easily overlooked or not noticed. When you're mindful, you're beginning to notice. It's like this. So that is what I have to offer for reflection this evening. And I thank you very much for the kindness of your attention and your willingness to um, participate. Enjoy your walking meditation under the moon.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.